Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, he's the fifth dimension, the eighth wonder of the world. He's Jeff, the talking mongoose. Oh, and Snippy the Horse. We're going to talk about uh, Snippy the Horse, too. It's Alamosa, Colorado, and Dolby, Isle of Man. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of season three. So that means we are getting down to the nitty gritty after this. Only the two part season finale of season three left, which uh, I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, but I have uh, high hopes for it. Yes. Um, this is an episode that I don't know. Maybe people have been looking forward to it because I've been kind of low key uh, hyping it up for quite a while we're going to talk about a couple of weird animal cases tonight. Not 
cryptids, but strange stories involving actual, well, quote-unquote, actual animals. We're going to be talking about Snippy the Horse, a.k.a. Lady the Horse, from Alamosa, Colorado, which was the first thing that kind of kicked off the whole cattle mutilation, animal mutilation phenomenon that we still see going on today. And then, of course, we're going to dig into uh, Jeff, the incredible talking mongoose case, which um, I've been kind of excited about, and I'll get into it more when we actually kind of talk about Jeff. But this is going to be, I think, a really fun, interesting episode. I have a lot of notes for both of these things. Uh, more than I really thought I would get for Snippy, but yeah, there was a lot more information out there about it than I originally thought, and really so much stuff on. This might be a very nice, extensive uh, episode to listen to if you are really interested in finding out about Jeff the Talking Mongoose, but those are our two things for the night. Not a big preamble, not a big intro, I just want to thank everyone once again for listening. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now, I hope everyone is staying safe. I did it again, safe and staying healthy and uh, listening to podcasts. Um, I know a lot of people aren't because they aren't commuting and that's when everyone listens to their podcast. I'm guilty of it too. Like I have so many shows to catch up on. Uh, hopefully if it's not 30 degrees next week, like it was this week, I'll be able to get some nice long walks in and catch up on some of my favorite shows and maybe explore some new ones. But the show is always going to be here. You don't have to listen to it day one. It's always going to be here for whenever you need it to be here. So with that being said, let's uh, take a listen to another Big Heads Media podcast podcast uh, called The List Game. And after that, we will be back and we'll get into the Snippy the Horse story. The List Game is a conversational improv game. Each of our panel members has a list of topics and or phrases that were drawn from the chicken hat. Their goal is to sneak those topics and phrases into the conversation with a tangent. Another member of the panel can call you out saying, that's on your list. If they're right, they get a point. If you bluffed or if they're just wrong, you get a point. Catch the list game wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, cup of coffee ready to go. Notes ready to go. Everything ready to go for Snippy the Horse from Alamosa, Colorado. The town of Alamosa, Colorado actually started out as a rail center established by the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. Over the years, the rail center evolved into the town of 8,780 that it is today. There is a very curious story about Alamosa. That is the story of Snippy the Horse what may have been the first quote-unquote cattle mutilation. It's odd that the first widely regarded case that would become known as the cattle mutilation phenomenon was actually a horse. It's also odd that the case is usually regarded as the Snippy, the horse case, when actually her name was Lady. It wasn't until after her death that she was renamed Snippy. Lady, a.k.a. Snippy, was a three-year-old Appaloosa horse that was found dead on the morning of September 9th 1967. And actually there's a little bit of debate to that to that uh to that day. Uh, most people agree on that. Some people say it was later in the month, but they can all agree it was in September of 67. Ranch boss Harry King grew worried that morning when Lady didn't show up for a morning treat and water. This would be the third day in a row, and this was something that she never missed. King started searching his ranch for the animal, 
not being prepared for what he would find. He found Lady out in the pasture dead, lying on her side. The skin had been removed at the base of the neck all the way up to and including her face. There was no blood on the scene. In its place were unexplainable burn marks. All the cuts seemed surgical, straight, and clean. The brain had been removed, clean from the horse's skull. However, the skull had not been cut open in any way. Other organs were missing as well. All of this was wrapped up in an odd chemical smell. The bones were bleached completely white, as if they had been baking in the sun for years. The body was not bloated, nor had animals attempted to scavenge the carcass. The weirdness did not end there. It had rained that week, leaving the ground soft, soft enough for tracks to be seen. Harry King saw three sets of tracks of horses at full gallop. It seemed to him that Lady had fallen behind and was cut off from the herd. The tracks went on and ended about a hundred feet from where the horse lay. King reported what he had found to the family, his sister Nellie Lewis, who's the actual owner of the horse, and her husband Burl Lewis went back out with Harry to see the remains of Lady. In fact, it was Nellie who is the uh, reason for the name change. Nellie said it was the press that had gotten the name wrong. Lady was the colt of another horse named Snippy. It stuck because Nellie never bothered to correct the press. They called the sheriff, but he brushed it off as a lightning strike and never came out to actually investigate the scene. Uh, APRO, however, would come out and investigate the scene. APRO investigators Don and Alice Renchman would conduct an investigation. Their results on the tracks differed from what others had said about them. They stated her tracks circled around and ended just 20 feet from the body. And to this day, we're not sure why there is such a discrepancy. So everyone, like the witnesses, Burl Lewis, said that Lady had galloped 100 feet and then she appeared, like her body appeared, like away from the tracks. And these guys are saying, well, no, she went around in circles a little bit and the tracks were much closer. But we don't really know why. It was never really disputed. Everyone was just like, ar, ar. But I think it's widely believed that it was the other way around and not not what the APRO investigators stated. A week or so after the initial discovery, Harry, Nellie, and her husband, Burl, did a much more exhaustive investigation of the area. They found more burn marks dotted around the carcass at 9, 13, and 21 feet away from Snippy, going in a northwesterly direction. These burn marks were described as upside-down question marks. No photos, sadly. Like that, Those would have been nice to have. There were also giant horse tracks, quotation marks, some 18 inches wide and 8 inches deep, going away from the body to the southeast. Also, no pictures that I know of. Nellie herself would also discover a strange green glob of some unknown substance, and when she touched it with her hands, it burned her hands. The burning sensation lasted until she was able to wash her hands. There have been many ideas as to what happened to the ill-fated horse. I've already mentioned the struck by lightning as one. This seems unlikely. Other than the burns, lightning would have not have been the cause of any of the other things that happened to Snippy. It doesn't account uh, the weird cuts. It doesn't account for the organ removal. It doesn't account for the odd tracks. Nothing. Harry King surmised that maybe she just died, and her head fell on a hill of fire ants. This may have just been a joke, 
but it's an interesting idea nonetheless. I mean, it kind of would account for some things. I like maybe enough fire ants could have eaten all the flesh off of her head in three days. Who knows? Uh, but it still doesn't account for burn marks and uh, and all that other jazz. Then, of course, there's the idea that it was done by aliens. Harry and Nellie's mother, Agnes, says she saw a bright object flying low over the King Ranch the night before Snippy had gone missing. She went on to say that this object had sheared the top off of a fence post. UFOs seemed to have been no stranger to the area at the time and were seen very regularly throughout the 60s. Nellie herself maintained that Snippy's death could somehow be attributed to UFOs. It wouldn't take long for the Air Force group known as the Condon Committee to look into the case. Dr. Robert Adams examined the case and presented his findings to the group. He conducted that Snippy had an infection on her back legs, and somebody probably slit her throat in an effort to end her pain. This is a quote from Dr. Adams. Bacteria, birds, and coyotes were responsible for the absence of organs in the abdominal cavity. Predators had eaten away part of the horse's rump, exposing the cavity. It was normal under the circumstances that the brain cavity was devoid of fluid because all tissue was gone from the skull. The opening in the back was exposed to air. Since the brain, after death, liquefied in hours, the fluid evaporated quickly in the warm prairie air. It was at least 30 days after Snippy's death before anyone examined the carcass, and the longest the fluid could have remained would have been two weeks. I know it's going to pop the bubble, but the horse was not killed by a flying saucer. Some of this makes complete and perfect sense. However, the timeline on some of it doesn't quite add up, nor does it seem to take into account uh, the burns, the strange tracks, or Nellie's mysterious green substance. Nor does it take into the account the, ex the complete lack of blood anywhere. There would be another examination of Snippy, albeit from a rather strange series of events. A man by the name of Dr. John Altshuler was found trespassing after hours at nearby Great Sand Dunes National Park. Dr. Altshuler was an accomplished pathologist. When pressed about why he was in the park after dark, he told the police that he was out searching for UFOs. He pleaded with them to keep his name a secret, worried that it would ruin his reputation. The officers agreed to let him off the hook if he would go to the King Ranch and examine Snippy's remains, which he did. This is a quote from Dr. Altshuler about Snippy. I have done hundreds of autopsies. You can't cut into a body without getting some blood. But there was no blood on the skin or the ground. No blood anywhere. The outer edges of the skin were cut firm, almost as if they had been cauterized by a modern-day laser. But there was no cauterizing laser technology like that in 1967. And obviously, I think that's a quote after he was found out. So somehow, somewhere his name didn't get out there. The Snippy the Horse case didn't end with her death. Years after her death, the skeleton would go from place to place and owner to owner. The skeleton even ended up on eBay for a while. However, the $50,000 reserve auction was canceled due to disagreements over the ownership of the bones. Oddly enough, the skeleton is also a subject of debate, as author Jim Brandon, among others, reported that Snippy's bones disintegrated after her death. 
So there's a there's a lot of people out there that believe that these are just the bones of any old horse, and <laughs> they probably are. I don't know. It just seems weird. Like how are you going to prove it? You know? Was it lightning, fire ants, aliens, or just the cause and the effects of a dying horse being put out of its misery? All that remains to be seen. But one thing is for sure: Alamosa, Colorado is where the strange and very debated phenomenon of animal mutilations began. And I'm going to put, like I always do, some pictures up on the website for you to take a look at. A couple of them are graphic as they are pictures of Snippy the horse after death, but you really get a sense for just how strange the scene was. And if you're into the paranormal and you know anything about the cattle mutilation phenomenon, you've probably seen stuff like this before, but imagine this being like one of the first times, if not the first time, that it ever happened. Like, how shocking and weird it would be. And it's one of those things that goes on and on. People try to say that it's like, oh, it's just bugs, because bugs will eat in a straight line, da-da-da, and do all this stuff. But we all know that nature doesn't do straight lines. Like, it just doesn't. Not perfectly straight kind of surgical lines. It, you know, they never seem to quite account for why there's no blood. They always try to chalk it up to like, oh, it's rain or or scavengers or this, that, and the other thing. But it's like, no, there's, it's not that the blood is gone. Like, the blood is gone. The blood was never really around in the first place. You know, Snippy Lady, the horse, ended up like, her tracks ended, and she was found away from those tracks. That posits that she wasn't originally... She didn't die, whatever, where she laid. It's almost like something got her, did whatever it did, and then put her back, but not quite in the same place as where she was abducted for lack of a better term, from. So, you can't, and you just can't get over it. Like, that's there. That's documented. That's what, how it was found. These weren't stupid people. Like, the guy knew how to track his horses. He, you know, like, he wouldn't have missed all of that. So this is the beginning of just a strange phenomenon that has been going on since then, and it probably won't be the last time uh, we visit this topic on the show. Nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. But... That is Snippy the Horse, or Lady the Horse. But let's get on to why everyone's really here. And that is uh, Jeff, the extra special, extra amazing, uh, fifth winner of the world, uh, talking, talking mongoose. Alright, and as I've said, I've been touting this story for a pretty long time. So this is a very kind of obscure story. Not unknown, as I found out, but its I don't think it's on a lot of people's radar. It certainly wasn't on mine. And as soon as it did pop up on my radar, as soon as it pinged off of that, I was like, this is perfect fodder for this show. So I started looking... I always try to find like a good book, if I can, or at least some good articles. And uh, I found... a an okay book. I was like, this will work. And I bought it, and it came in, and when I got this book, I was like, oh boy, this is insane. The book is 
called, hold on, let me grab that so everyone can see it real quick. I got to go down to the sources here right quick. It is called Jeff, The Strange Tale of an Extra Special Talking Mongoose by a Christopher, I'm not sure how you say his last name, Yosefi? Yosef? Joseph? It's J-O-S-I-F-F-E, however you pronounce that. I'm sorry, I have no idea. But anyway, when I got this book, it was 417 pages, which, you know, for like a novel, that's not a lot. But for a paranormal book, a modern paranormal book, that is gigantic. And granted, like, only 370 pages of it are kind of readable stuff. The rest of it is notations and sources and bibliography and all that stuff. But still, 370 pages on a modern paranormal tome is a pretty hefty book. Like, there are books on Roswell that aren't that long. So I was like, oh man, this is going to be... I could see it coming. I was like, this is going to be so full of fluff. It's going to be they're going to go off on tangents about every little thing. But no. I'm here to say that that book is amazing. Amazingly well written, amazingly well researched, amazingly well put together. It is the most extensive on-topic book in the paranormal that I've read in quite some time. I'm going to say it does get off into some tangents near the end like like, you know, they start talking about poltergeists and they bring up some other poltergeist cases and they start talking about tulpas and stuff and go out to explain what that is. But I'm going to say this book is probably on point 80 to 85% of the time. Like, it is about Jeff and the Irvings and their story and everything that happened. It is chock full of pictures. It is chock full of newspaper articles. It is... A terrific book and I highly recommend getting it if you are looking for something uh, to read that's not ghosts that's not UFOs it's not Bigfoot something different then get uh, this book on Jeff and I will have it linked in the show notes of course as a source I have the Amazon link right on there you can go you can grab it it is good but let's talk about Jeff the talking mongoose how about uh, right now that sounds good why not Dolby is a small hamlet on the southwestern side of the Isle of Man. It's known for its view of Nibral Bay. However, what put Dolby on the map is not a great view of the water, or its old World War II bunkers that litter farmers' fields. Dolby is where a spunky talking mongoose named Jeff, and that's spelled the cool way, by the way, G-E-F. That's the way cool Jeffs spell their name has said to have been from. This tale begins in 1931 with the Irving family. James Irving had been making a rather good living in Liverpool as a salesman for the Dominion Piano Company. This company operated out of Canada, and so all the pianos had to be imported to England. During the First World War, the McKenna Tariff put him out of business. This tariff was a 33 and a third percent import tax on all non-essential wartime cargo. The idea behind this was to free up the ports for the war effort. Not knowing what to do, James Irving decided to start a farm. Never been a farmer before, had no idea what he was doing, gonna buy a farm. He took what money he had left and bought a small farm on top of Dolby Mountain, which isn't a mountain, it's a big hill, 725 feet above sea level. 
The farm was named Dorlish Cashin. Irving, 58 at the time, his wife Margaret, 54, and their youngest daughter, Voiry, 13, then moved from the suburbs of Liverpool to the rural island known as the Isle of Man. And, like, so I want to go back a little bit. Um, Vori was their youngest daughter. Like, they had, I think, a daughter and a son that were kind of already adults or getting there by the time Vori came along. So they were already out of the house and leading their own lives. And so she was the youngest one, and she was with them. And uh, the other thing about, uh, it's not my notes, but I want to mention, Dorlish Cash, like I said, it was on a very steep, very high hill. And apparently, to get to the farm, you had to walk up a path, a winding path, that was almost a mile long to get from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill, and vice versa. It would be later that year, in September, when Jeff, the mongoose, a.k.a. the Dolby Spook, would first make himself known. At first, the odd creature was known as Jack, and was referred to as a ghost of a weasel and not a mongoose. The creature started off by making a general racket around the house, as well as satanic laughter. In the first few months, Jack the Weasel terrified the family. As the months went on, however, the creature started to learn to talk, presumably by watching and listening to the Irvings. Soon, the animal was talking and singing at all hours, mostly at night. Jeff was said to have had a very high-pitched, childlike voice. James Irving surmised that this was due to his small throat and vocal cords. Soon stories of this talking mongoose began to find their way around the island. On January of 1932, an anonymous reporter from the Manchester Daily Dispatch wrote an article about Jeff. And here's a little bit of it. Man Weasel Mystery Grips Island. The mysterious man-weasel of Dorlish Cashin has spoken to me today. Investigation of a most remarkable animal story that has ever been given publicity. A story which is finding credence all over the island leaves me in a state of considerable perplexity. Had I spoke with the weasel? I do not know, but I do know that I have heard today a voice which I should never have imagined could issue from a human throat. The people claim it is the voice of a strange weasel, seems sane, honest, and responsible folk, and are not likely to indulge in a difficult, long-drawn-out, and unprofitable practical joke to make themselves the talk of the world. So at this, at this time, he was still uh, being referred to as a weasel, a man-weasel, apparently. James Irving told this reporter some other interesting things about Jeff. Jeff could apparently speak bits and pieces of several languages. He was very shy and weary of visitors. He only ate food that was laid out for him. However, when asked once, he replied his favorite food was uh, air, quote-unquote. The reporter desperately wanted to hear Jeff speak, but after a while, he gave up and started to leave. As the reporter exited the house, he hastily was called back by James. It started, James yelled. The two men carefully listened to the tiny voice from the front porch. Margaret was talking to him. She was not aware the reporter had come back. He's gone now, she said. He has not. I can hear him whispering, replied Jeff. This was indeed correct, as Mr. Irving and the reporter were whispering to one another. It wouldn't be until sometime in 1932 
that the entity said it preferred to be called Jeff and was an extra special talking mongoose. Jeff was described as being 12 to 15 inches in length, six inches of that being bushy tail. He allegedly had large human-like front paws and bushy eyebrows. Despite this description, Jeff was, where, was rarely seen as he spent most of his time in the home hiding in between the concrete outside wall and the wooden inner walls of the house. He also had what is called his sanctuary upstairs. This consisted of something of akin to a bulkhead on the inside wall. On top of this bulkhead was also a heavy wooden chair which Jeff was known to push around for exercise. This posit that Jeff seemed to have incredible strength for such a small creature. Once Jeff had set the record straight that he was a talking mongoose, he would go on to tell the Irvings that he had been born in New Delhi, India, in 1852. While there, he lived with two separate people, and sometimes he would say that he lived with uh, a man and then another man, and then sometimes he would say he lived with a man and then a woman. Maybe Jeff just doesn't know the difference. He would be chased from, eventually he would be chased from New Delhi. The Irvins even reported finding a small Indian artifact on the roof of the house. How Jeff got from India to the Isle of Man is unknown, but there is some evidence to support a mongoose being on the Isle of Man, even though they are not native to the island. One other nearby farm, called Ari Kushlin, a farmer also named Irving, released a number of mongooses in order to take on the rat population. This happened, we think, in about 1912 or so. Could Jeff have been one of these mongooses? And apparently it is mongooses, it's not mongeese. This may be the case. Jeff often told the Irvings that when he died, he would return to the Land of Mist, and he often referred to Uri Kushlin as the Land of Mist. It wouldn't take long for word of Jeff to reach famed paranormal investigator Harry Price. Now, if that name sounds familiar to listeners of this show, it's not the first time I have talked about Mr. Price. He was also uh, the guy behind the Borley Rectory, which is an episode I did way back in season one, like the third episode, I think, ever, maybe the fourth episode of the show. There's been enough episodes now where I can't just automatically recall which order they were, but I think it was the third episode, season one, episode three, maybe episode four. Price received a letter from another Isle of Man resident by the name of Miss Milburn. Intrigued, Price contacted James Irving by mail and after receiving permission, dispatched a member of his own National Laboratory of Psychical Research, one Harold Dennis. Dennis arrived at Dorless Cashin on February 26, 1932 at around 7.30 p.m. Dennis listened to the family recount the story and was shown various cracks and holes in the wall where Jeff was said to speak from. Dennis stayed until almost midnight. After not hearing or experiencing anything, he decided to take his leave. Irving showed him out the door, and as soon as the door closed, Jeff could be heard saying, Go away! Who is that man? Dennis came back inside for another 15 minutes or so, but upon hearing nothing, he left for his hotel room. Harold Dennis came back the next morning, and he stayed all day, talking to James and Voiry. Uh, Margaret was gone to Peel to do some errands, and investigating the house. Then, at 5.30 p.m., as the three sat at the kitchen table, something was thrown from behind the wall, just behind Mr. Irving. 
The object bounced off a teacup. It turned out to be a packing case needle. An hour later, they heard plates being moved in the cupboards. Later that evening, after Mrs. Irving had returned from nearby Peel, she suggested to try and sneak up on Jeff as he was upstairs. Quietly, Dennis started up the stairs, only to stumble and make himself known. Jeff screamed, He's coming! Dennis would make two more visits to the Irvings in 1935. Not much happened on the second visit, other than Jeff relating to Margaret all the details on a trip Mr. Irving and Harold Dennis had taken that day. It would seem Jeff had followed them. Dennis's third and final visit was the most eventful. One night, the family and Dennis heard the geese start to call. Apparently, the geese often would become agitated when Jeff was near. And he never, uh, he never like, went for any of the chickens or anything like that, as kind of these mongoosey ferret things are known to do, or the geese. But, like, the chickens never cared. Nothing cared. Only the geese would make noise. Dennis asked Jeff to speak. He would not speak, but instead started making knocking noises, which seemed to come from all over the house. It wouldn't be till after Voiry went to bed that Jeff would start to cackle, talk, and make all sorts of racket. He even gave out his satanic laugh when asked. On July 30th of 1935, Harry Price and an associate, Richard Lambert, arrived at the Isle of Man. Price had finally come to see the talking mongoose for himself. Price asked the Irvings if there was anything he could bring from the mainland for them. They requested a camera for Voiry. Voiry was very close to Jeff. For a long time, they had a strong bond. It was thought that by supplying their daughter with the camera, she may be able to persuade Jeff to come out for some photos. And there are pictures of Jeff. They're not uh, great pictures of Jeff, or whatever Jeff was, but they are there in this book of some ones that you won't find on the internet. They're kind of fun, but there will be some in the show notes. Upon Price's visit, Jeff had not been seen for a couple of weeks. Sometimes this would happen. Jeff would go on adventures. This may also be chalked up to Jeff not liking Price. I like Dennis, but not Price, he once said. Price and Lambert were quick to realize that Voorhees seemed to be at the heart of the case. She talked to Jeff, played games with him, and Jeff seemed to be rather protective of her. However, she was a quiet girl, and her father seemed to overtake any conversation regarding Jeff. The two men wanted to talk to Vori with her, without her father dominating the conversation. So they came up with a plan. They asked Vori, who had not seen much of the Isle of Man, to join them on a tour of the island. This, of course, was just a ruse to ask her questions without her father present. She agreed, but Mr. Irving insisted he should go along as well. Uh, their plan had backfired, so all they got was a tour of the island they probably didn't want in the first place. Price's visit was less than fantastic, but Price and Lambert would stay close to the case and the people involved. The two men went on to write a book about Jeff entitled The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, A Modern Miracle Investigated. It would also not be the last Jeff investigation. In 1937, a member of the International Institute of Psychological Research, is a different institute, named Nandor Fodor, stayed at Dorlish Cashin for an entire week. Fodor was a psychologist with a keen interest in the paranormal. Fodor arrived on February 1st. He paid room and board and stayed at the house for the whole week, so he didn't go back and forth from a hotel. He was there on site. 
he had come to interview others on the Isle of Man about Jeff and try to recreate a rapport with the mongoose himself. By this time, Jeff was starting to wane on the family. He had become a grumpy little creature around this time. Voiry had started to grow bored and annoyed with Jeff. Margaret was ready to be done with him as well. I almost forgot to mention that Fodor was not alone. He was accompanied by an old friend of Mr. Irving's named Charles Morrison. While at the farm, James Irving told Fodor about Jeff. Jeff had been taunting the family, saying stuff like, I've been to much nicer homes than this one. And Jeff would go on to say that he had visited a well-known mansion on the other side of the island called Balamore. Jeff gave precise details about the building and urged the Irvings to go and visit to see that he was correct. But the Irvings had no car and no money to take a bus trip to the mansion to confirm. Upon hearing this, Morrison contacted the owners of Balamore and asked if they could visit. Permission was eventually granted, and Fodor paid for bus tickets and off they went. It turned out that of the 30 details Jeff had given about Balamore, only three were wrong, 20 were spot on, and seven were pretty close to being correct. At the end of the week, even though Fodor had not seen nor spoken to Jeff, his visit to Balamore and the many stories of witnesses around the island convinced him that Jeff was not a hoax. He did a couple things. Um, I, I, I highlighted so much stuff in this book that I realized like I had to cut a lot of it out because I was like, I will talk about, I have enough notes, I could talk about this for an hour and a half. So I, I took some of this out like, got to get that book. And, you know, he was really interested in the penny trick that Jeff would do where people would flip a coin and Jeff could see it from somewhere behind the wall and be able to tell you most of the time what the coin was. He got many accounts of people who had seen Jeff out and about town. You know, he his visit was pretty, I think, monumental, even though he didn't see Jeff. The whole Balamore thing really goes into debunking a lot of um, skeptical things about Jeff, like, kind of get into it here in a couple minutes. What was Jeff, though? There are many ideas on that, of course. One, Jeff was a hoax. Many claim that it was Voyer herself that made a lot of the noises and even threw her voice in order to make Jeff speak. This does not account for a lot of the things Jeff knew or the throwing of objects. Others say it was a conspiracy between Margaret and Voiry in order to scare James Irving into selling the property. If this was the case, it backfired big time. Not only did the stories drop the property value, but James, of course, just became more and more intrigued with Jeff. Then there's the physical evidence. Over the years, the Irvings were able to acquire hair samples from Jeff, as well as imprints of his footprints and teeth marks. When this evidence was examined, the hair seemed to be that of a dog, and the footprints lacked any dermal ridges. There are some rather interesting pictures of Jeff. However, even those are up for debate. 2. Was Jeff a ghost? Jeff seemed to be both corporeal and non-corporeal, and claimed many times that he was not a ghost. However, let's go back to Ari Kushlin for a little bit. Ari Kushlin has a ghost story attributed to it, the ghost of a small boy. Is it possible that Jeff was an offspring of one of the mongooses let loose at early Cashin? Was he possessed by this child ghost? After all, he did have many childish mannerisms, 
As I stated before, Jeff said that upon his death, he would return to the land of Miss, uh, early Cushlin. Cushlin. Could this mean that once the body of the mongoose died, the ghost will return to early Cashlin? And that's kind of my take on him being a ghost. I thought that was kind of an interesting way. I started thinking about it. I'm like, I, I really dig that idea. So that's not in the book or anything. That's me. But there was some... Some people did believe that he was a ghost, but that didn't quite make sense either because he just didn't seem to have kind of ghostly properties. You know, it just didn't... I don't know. It didn't quite... That wasn't quite pinging it for a lot of people. Three, Jeff was a poltergeist. It's rare, but not unheard of, for poltergeists to claim to be physical entities and even talk. Both Jeff and many poltergeists have much in common. Noises coming from everywhere at the same time around the house, throwing objects. Could some of the objects Jeff bought, brought to the family be a ports? So things like the Indian figure, um, he was known to go out and hunt and kill rabbits that the family would then sell. They actually made quite a bit of money selling Jeff's rabbits, but did he go out and hunt these things, or did he apport already uh, hunted rabbits to the family? And, you know, there would be other things like this, like he had accumulated a small collection of rubber balls that he liked to play with. A couple of them were gifts, but sometimes, you know, not all of them. So where did all that come from? He seemed to be the most strongest when Voyeur was young, going through puberty, and started to fade as she got older. And of course, just the general mischief that he would make. These are all very poltergeisty things, and there's a lot to that. And I'm, not, I'm still not, I still don't think that's quite, quite where it needs to be. But this is the one that I really like. Four, could Jeff have been some sort of tulpa or thought form? It has been positive that Jeff was created by the combined psychic energy and the will of the Irvings themselves. They probably made him without even knowing it. This would explain how Jeff seems to change as the family changes, and how he grows surely when they finally get annoyed with him, and finally fading away after the family faded away. Uh, I like that one. I like that one a lot. Um, I'm really into the Tulpa idea, I think, a lot. Some of the stuff that's out there is stuff that is created just because we as a society have put so much thought into it. I mean, if you think about it, and there was also some talk, it's in the book, I didn't really get into it here, that Margaret herself had some kind of psychic abilities. She had some powers going on, if you will. So is it possible that you have these three people, they're from the big city, they move to the Isle of Man, and they and the the wife who may be a little psychic and the daughter who is bored out of her mind and from all accounts it kind of sounds like Mr. Irving was also bored out of his mind because without Jeff who knows what he would have gotten into could these people have just poured this energy into something and made it manifest and made it real now I want to get into something kind of crazy that I was thinking about the other day Going back to the quote-unquote evidence of Jeff, the hair and the footprints, the teeth marks, all that jazz. Uh, they were examined back in the 30s, so no DNA test or anything, but the, the person that examined said, like, hey, this is a dog, and said, hey, not only is it a dog, but it kind of looks like the hairs from their dog. I would, I would posit this, and this is kind of out there, but chew on it for a little bit. If you create a thought form 
it's a thought form. It's created from your thoughts and your perception of reality. So, if you don't have any semblance in your head about what mongoose fur is supposed to be like, and your only frame of reference to fur is dog fur, then your thought form is going to have what you think your perception of fur is. And if dog fur is all you've got, then you've created a talking mongoose with dog fur and not dog fur and not mongoose fur. And it's kind of the same, I think, with the footprints. Footprints didn't have dermal ridges. Uh, if you look at the picture, you see two big ones. You see one is supposed to be his front paw with his human-like fingers extended. The other one is supposed to be his other front paw with his fingers kind of pulled back. And then there's the back feet. They look normal. And then weird little teeth marks. No dermal ridges. But once again, depending on how much energy put into the thing, if you don't account for dermal ridges, then maybe your thought form just doesn't have them. I know that's out there. I know that's wacky. And I'm kind of, but, um, I don't know. Kind of makes sense if thought forms are real. Like, if you don't know what you're doing and you make one, just kind of off the cuff and unpurposely, who knows what weird attributes it's going to have, right? Or, and this is number five, is Jeff, as he always maintained, just an earthbound spirit of an extra special mongoose. And an earthbound spirit is not so much a ghost, but a actual soul itself that has never been able to leave the earth and now it's inhabiting a mongoose. That's what he always kind of maintained that he himself was. As the 30s gave away to the 40s, things started to change drastically for the Irving family. In 1939, or perhaps 1940, a much older Vori went off to help the war effort. She took a manufacturing position on the Isle of Man for Doty's aviation. While still on the island, she would visit her parents once a week. Later, she took a permanent position with the company and moved back to the mainland. In 1943, James Irving became ill. He died in 1945 of a pernicious anemia. After James's death, Margaret sold Dorless Cashin and moved back to Liverpool with her eldest daughter, Elise. It was said by the family that the last visit by Jeff occurred in 1942. Dorless Cashin changed hands a couple of times after the Irvings left with no sign of Jeff. However, in a news story dated February 21, 1947, the new owner of the farm, Leslie Graham, claimed to have shot and killed Jeff. The picture supplied with the article makes this unlikely. The animal that was shot was much too large and had black fur. It resembled a polecat and not the small 12-inch body of Jeff. Anyone who knew Jeff said this was definitely not him. No, I don't believe that Jeff was killed. I think as the energies of the Irvings faded, so did Jeff, until he just ceased to exist. Today, Dorlish Cashin is nothing more than a large field dotted with some small buildings. The house has been demolished, leaving little remains. But if you venture to the Isle of Man, there are still memories of Jeff, the fifth dimension, the eighth wonder of the world, the extra special talking mongoose and that is that's that's the story in a nutshell almost of jeff the extra special talking mongoose so 
I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it's it's a great story that has so much more to it that I could not even get into. You know, uh, I mean, like just you know how James Irving kept a diary. There was even I didn't even talk about this. There was even a slander case between Lambert, which was the guy that went with Price, and um, another man named Cecil Lavida. Uh, they they got into a big, big slander thing because I think Lambert was trying to get a film made or something, and this guy was like, "This man can't be taken seriously because he believes in a talking mongoose and all this stuff." So they actually used uh, evidence and stuff from the Jeff case to show that Lambert might have believed in it, but it shouldn't have been uh, you know a a factor in him being able to do this movie or whatever. And the court actually won his favor. Just a bunch of stuff. Great book. Check it out. I will have pictures of Jeff. Whatever. That might be. I will have the pictures of his feet and all that in the show notes. I urge you to really take a good look at this case because it's so just a different take on a lot of the things that we see out there in this weird world. And a lot of little kind of rabbit holes to fall down. But let's uh, let's take a little intermission, get some music going here, and we'll come back and we'll do some local headlines. How about that? Sounds good, right?
Okay, I don't know if I've ever mentioned the name of that track. There's a lot of tracks that I have that are left over from the other podcast that I did. And I just, I don't know if I've ever named most of them. But that one is called uh, Something Wicked, which is just a little guitar track that really was never meant to be anything. But I kind of dug it and uh, decided to kind of finish it out. But let's talk about some local headlines, some local news. First one is from Cambridge News. This is by Ella Pengeli. Large wildcat with big claw spotted in central Cambridge. A man has spotted a large wildcat with big claws roaming around his garden in central Cambridge. The wildcat, which has been compared to the size of a fully grown Labrador dog, was seen near Coldham's Lane earlier this morning, April 11th. A resident who lives in the area said it wasn't the first time the large cat, but this time they were able to get a picture showing the unusual animal exploring the garden. It was around 8 or 8.30 a.m. this morning when I saw the animal from my kitchen window. It somehow keeps coming back to this place to hunt rabbits or other small animals, he said. The resident, who wished to remain anonymous, said he thought the animal was a certain species of wildcat, but when he looked closer, it was far too large. He explained, initially I thought it was a wildcat, like a Felis Silvestris. But then I went to my colleagues at the university, and they said it can't have been, as this animal was way bigger. Looking at the tail, it's definitely a different species. It is a wild cat, but not that species, I don't think. The animal was brown and black color, with a very long tail that had lots of black circles on it. The tail was so long, and its legs were thick, as well as big claws. It was about the size of a fully grown Labrador dog. When asked about whether or not this could have been the Fen Tiger, the man added, I have heard about the mystery of the Fen Tiger, but I don't know if this was it. This was a wild cat, like people have said the Fen Tiger is, and this one is the size of a Labrador dog. The Fen Tiger has, as myth goes, been on the prowl in Cambridgeshire and beyond for over 30 years, with numerous sightings being reported throughout the country. The most recent suspect sighting of the animal happened behind the Abbotsley Golf Club in St. Neots on December 18th of last year. After the man saw the cat today, he tried to contact the Wildlife Trust, but because of the coronavirus lockdown, there was no immediate answer. I rang the number, but because of the pandemic, everything has to be done through email. So I've sent one and I'm waiting for a reply, he said. If I had to go out on a limb, I think this is another one of those cases of animals coming back into towns because there's so little people walking around. Um, you know, the, I mean, you, you've seen it around, like there's a great story a couple weeks ago about all the mountain goats that have invaded this little town. And I do apologize. I seem to be losing my voice a little bit, but I'm going to try to power on. So this next article actually has like seven small articles in it. Uh, I'm not going to read all seven of them, once again, kind of because of my voice. I'm just going to read the first two because I thought that they were pretty interesting. Uh, there's not really a headline, not really an author. I don't know if this is a quote-unquote a news story, just kind of a, a historical article about some stuff. This week it emerged that railway workers had found a 14th century cave and drawings during landslip repair works near Guilford in Surrey. It's the latest in a string of fascinating historical finds on the railway. So this is the first one. It's about the cave. 
a 14th century cave. A team of rail workers repairing a landslip near Gerfield in Surrey uncovered a small cave believed to have been from the 14th century. The sandstone cave comprises several sections, ranging from 0.3 meters to about 0.7 meters high. It may once have been much larger, but only the small piece survived the digging of the railway cutting through the hill in the early 1840s. Initial findings by a specialist archaeologist contractor suggest it was a later medieval shrine or hermitage associated with early 14th century chapel of St. Catherine, the ruins of which still sit on a hill nearby. It may even have earlier origins as a site of cult activity due to its pre-14th century name of Drake Hill, Hill of the Dragon. Images taken from the site show the presence of a gothic niche decorated in dots with a calvary across nearby. There are a total of around seven or eight further niches and experts found considerable evidence of writing and other markings across the cave ceiling. The cave is partially covered in deposits of black dust, which is believed to be soot from the lamps. The remains of two suspected fire pits were also uncovered in the cave floor. The hope is that radiocarbon dating can be used to establish the period when the cave was in use. Mark Killick, route director of our Wessex route, said, This is an unexpected and fascinating discovery that helps to visualize and understand the rich history of the area. A full and detailed record of the cave has been made and every effort will be made to preserve elements where possible during the regarding of the delicate <clears throat> and vulnerable sandstone cutting. Tony Howe, historic environmental planning manager and county archaeologist at Surrey County Council said, The discovery of this cavern is tremendously exciting. It's very early in the process of understanding its full significance, but the potential for knowledge acquisition is huge. Work is underway to analyze soot and charcoal found inside the cave, which will hopefully tell us more about how it was used. And I think that's kind of the main article. That's the newest discovery that they found along this new rail line. So that's one of the one I really wanted to get into. But the second one kind of caught my eye just because it's they're building a railroad, and then I think they find uh, evidence of an older railroad around there. So this is the second little article. Victorian Roundhouse Unearthed in Birmingham. In March, engineers unearthed what is thought to be the world's oldest railway roundhouse at the construction site of the new Birmingham Cruzon Street Station. HS2, the new high-speed railway, sent a statement that the roundhouse sat adjacent to the old Cruzon Street Station, the first railway station serving the city center. The turntable within the roundhouse would turn the engines so the trains could go back down the line. The roundhouse also stored engines where they were serviced. It said the railway was built during a period of great significance and growth for the city, built to a design by a 19th century engineer, Robert Stevenson. The roundhouse was operational on 12th November, 1837, meaning the recently discovered building is likely to predate the current title holder of the world's oldest in Derby by almost two years. It is said that the railway's 1847 roundhouse at the southern end of the line is today better known as the Farmhouse Roundhouse Music Venue in Camden, London. Anthony Blakeway, a track maintenance technician at Network Rail working at the site at the time of the discovery, said, The dig was on what was effectively waste ground 
also a burial site from an old graveyard from what we had seen in the past few months. So hopefully they will uncover the second roundhouse that the old plans show, but over the years it's probably already been dug out and removed. So those are, there's like I said, there's a lot of pictures and there's a lot more articles about other stuff that England has dug up while trying to build new roadways. But those were the first two, and I just kind of thought that they were they were interesting to me. So our last one doesn't really, I can't tie a town to it, so we're just going to pretend it's a small town. Uh, this is from the Daily Star UK, written by Sophie Jackson. The headline reads, Exorcist's terror as demon with rows of teeth appears by bed before a huge blackout. An exorcist has described a chilling encounter with what she said was a demon with rows of teeth leering at her as she lay petrified in her bed. Sharing her experience on the Talk is Jericho podcast, professional exorcist Rachel Stavis recalled how the feminine demon pounced on her in the middle of the night. She said, I was asleep and I woke up because there was an entity that was specific to the the location to New Orleans. So it happened somewhere in New Orleans. It was something that I'd never seen exactly like this before. And it was this female figure and it opened its mouth and it had rows and rows and rows, three rows, of teeth. The creature's shark-like teeth were not the only thing creepy about it. The demon was also practically touching her, she added. Rachel said, it was on to me. And here's where things get nuttier. Out of the side of the room, out of the darkness comes this man, a huge man with long dark hair that was over his face. And he took this thing, put it into his hands and walked backwards into the shadows and it was gone. The experience was unnerving despite her experience as an exorcist, Rachel admitted, especially when she realized that there was no power and she couldn't turn on a light. She said, I sat up in this bedroom. There's a nightlight. It's one of those projector nightlights where it shows on the ceiling an aquarium of fish. It was not on. And I was like, okay. And I had a significant other there with me. And she's like, I just saw this thing with teeth and a face. That's when we noticed that the entire block, all the power was out. And the next day we checked and the power went out the exact moment that those things happened. So there you go. New Orleans, not really a small town, but it might have taken place in a suburb. I'll count a suburb. And it just seemed, it seems like a very kind of creepy, super powerful kind of uh, shadow person experience or... Um, sleep paralysis thing going on maybe amplified by the power going out but that's been this week's local headlines but don't fret we've got some uh, ye old your small town secrets here to talk about as well okay uh, tonight for uh, your small town secrets I wanted. I, I decided to do something a little different. Uh, last week, I think, or maybe a couple weeks ago, I was flipping through Twitter, like one is known to do, and I came across a Twitter account called Lost Ghost, and that is at GB Lost Ghost, and they post uh, old news articles of ghostly happenings. I think I think it's GB because it's Great Britain, because a lot of these are from Britain. This has been a very Britain, England-centric episode. Not by design, mind you. And not a bad thing either. It just kind of fell into place like that. 
So I grabbed a couple of them that I liked, and I'm going to go ahead and share them with you. And I will put links to the Twitter and their Facebook in the show notes so you can give them a follow and check it out for yourself. This first one is from the uh, is from the Illustrated Police News, September 4th of 1897. The little article here is called A Lincolnshire Ghost. Supposed Discovery of Human Bones. The good folk at Helton Holgate, a village near Spilsby in Lincolnshire, are excited over a ghost story. For some time, rumors have been afloat of human bones having been discovered under the brick floor of a farm near the village. Of strange, unearthly tappings have been heard, and the appearance of a ghostly visitor as the precursor of these happenings. The farmstead, where the weird sounds are said to have been heard and the ghost is said to have been seen, stands some distance from the high road, and it's occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Wilson and their manservant. Mrs. Wilson has been seen and has told the following remarkable story. We came here on Lady Day last. The first night or so, we heard very strange noises about midnight. As through someone, as though someone was knocking at the door and the walls. Once it seemed as though someone was moving all the things about in a hurry downstairs. Another time, the noise was like a heavy picture falling from the wall. But in the morning, I found everything as right as it was the night before. The servant man left saying he dared not stop and we'd had to get another. Then, about six weeks ago, I saw something. Before getting in the bed, my husband, having retired before me, I went downstairs to see the cow. And just as I was about to go up again, I saw an old man standing at the top, looking at me. He was standing as though he was very round-shouldered. How I got past, I can't say. But I darted past him into the bedroom and slammed the door. Afterwards, I felt that someone was behind me. I turned round sharply, and there again stood the same old man. He quickly vanished, but I am quite certain I saw him. I have also seen him several times since, though not quite as distinctively. Mrs. Wilson next conducted her interviewer to the sitting room where a gruesome discovery had been made. The floor in one corner had been very uneven, and a day or two ago, Mrs. Wilson took up the bricks with the intention of relaying them. No sooner had she done this than a most disagreeable odor had emitted. Her suspicions being aroused, she called her husband, and the two commenced a minute examination. Three or four bones were soon turned over, together with a gold ring and several pieces of an old black silk. All these have evidently been buried in quick lime. Asked what her own opinion of the fair was, Mrs. Wilson confidently asserted her belief that at some time or other foul play had taken place. She was fully persuaded in her own mind with regard to the apparition and thought it was suggested she might have been mistaken. She disdained the idea as being beneath notice. Dr. Gay, a local medical man to whom the bones have been submitted, states that they are undoubtedly human, but he believes them to be nearly 100 years old. And that is, I really dug that because they found bones, you know, they found evidence and stuff. Uh, it's an old article, it's written kind of differently. It's a little harder to read, uh, but I read it how it was written. Uh, but if you can see past that, there is a really good, really good ghost story haunting in there. 
And the other one actually is not from Britain. It is from Idaho. And this one is from the Lubbock Morning Avalanche. That's a great name for a newspaper. September 30th of 1954. Ghost-haunted convict confesses slain. Idaho posses hunt remains of murdered man. So this story's got a posse in it. Boise, Idaho, September 29th. Searchers on horseback and afoot redoubled efforts today to find remains of a man whose murder has been confessed by a life-turned-convict haunted by the victim's ghost. The convict, Kenneth Raymond Hastings, 31, told warden Ellie Clapp of the Idaho Penitentiary that he shot and killed a fellow member of his robber gang, Ivan Baker, 30, near Arco, Idaho, in 1951. Hastings asked for the death penalty, claiming that it is the only way he can get away from Baker's ghost and threatens suicide if he is not hanged. Searchers failed to find Barker's remains on the first day of their hunt, Tuesday, in Butte County in southern Idaho, but Clapp said he had no doubt that Hastings was telling the truth. The convict could not pinpoint the spot where he left the body under a pile of sagebrush but said he could see the lights of an atomic reactor at Arco on the horizon after the killing. Hastings told Clapp that Barker's ghost sits on the edge of my bunk and grins at me all night. He said he shot Baker because the latter was trying to force a female member of the robber gang into prostitution. And I, I wanted to read that one because, and I cannot remember which episode it is, but we did, we, I did another yield ghost story that was submitted to me that was very similar to this about a guy who was in jail who was on the pokey and it was like it was like wild you know wild west stuff and he was haunted by this ghost that also sat at his bunk but this place's little twitter account is chock full of just just uh great stories from days past like that one i wanted to read was actually from peel on the isle of man but the photograph, the the article, the picture of the page, like, I couldn't read all of it. So I just kind of didn't do it because it was very faded in some spots and you couldn't make out a lot of the sentences. So I kind of had to just find another one. But that was originally what, what drew me to it was like, oh, here's a Peel article and it goes with Isla Man. But I think it still worked out. And uh, that is it for this week's your small town secrets thank you to uh, gb lost ghost on twitter for letting me use a couple of your uh, articles there and may not be the last time we hear from them on this show and there we go that is another episode in the books and i think actually this is the longest episode that doesn't have like an interview in it they always make it go over I don't really have a time frame, but I usually shoot for 45 minutes to an hour. And then usually if there's an interview, it'll, it'll usually spill over. But I've really had a lot of fun with this episode. Finally got to, finally got to talk about Jeff. Finally got to talk about Snippy. Uh, even though I'm losing my voice doing it, thanks for putting up with it. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I've got. Um, once again, plug time. Please visit sdscast.com. Uh, you can buy merch there. You can see all the show notes, all the pictures for this episode, every episode that I've done. Also, as always, if you want to share an experience 
scroll down the bottom of that main page. There's an email form to fill out. It'll come right to me. Or if you want to get at me on social media, you can do that. You can follow the show at STScast on both Facebook and Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at STScast.gram if you would like to get a hold of me there. There is also a Reddit page, r slash uh, STS Listener Stories, I believe. It's linked also at the bottom of the main page there, as pretty much everything is. And that's a place that you can go to submit a story. I'd like to get more people on that. So far, it hasn't been like a big thing. But that is just another way, another avenue to uh, send me your experience or discuss some things or whatever. But once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for once again putting up with my slowly failing voice. But I'm going to get off of here and let this rest and prepare for the season finale, the two-part season finale. Once again, I'm not going to say much about it, but final episode of this season, I've got uh, a guest that I'm really happy to get on and talk about uh, the topic of, of the season finale. So next episode begins that, and stay tuned for it. We'll be back. So until then, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.